Welcome to the OMR podcast, where we go inside the minds of the biggest names in marketing and tech. My name is Scott Peterson, and I am a writer at OMR. In this episode of the OMR podcast, we are thrilled to welcome ex Wharton School of Business professor David Bell. Bell has a reputation of being a guru for direct to consumer brands. He's advised and invested in companies like Warby Parker, Me Undies, and Harry's Razors, to name a few. In fact, he's now retired from academia and focuses on investing in other DTC startups through his VC firm, Idea Farm Ventures. We caught up with Bell at this year's OMR Festival and picked his brain on the DTC trend, what factors are key to the business model's success, and what aspiring entrepreneurs need to know in advance before launching. All of that and more in the OMR Podcast. Hi, David. Uh, Dave Bell. Thanks a lot for uh, being on the OMR Podcast. Sure, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm actually jumping in for Philip today, Philip Westermeyer. My name is Florian Heinemann. I've, I've been here like an occasional host once in a while. If Philip is busy and we are here today at OMR Festival. So Philip obviously is busy, so I'm, I'm <laughs> jumping in for him. Um, and, and David is a... Is quite a legend in, in the US. You're not that well known um, in, in Germany so far, uh, but uh, you're definitely one of the thought leaders in uh, direct to consumer, oh, uh, direct uh, digitally native vertically integrated brands, which has become quite a theme in investing, but also in CPGs. So could you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah, sure. Certainly. Yeah. Thanks, Lauren. So a real pleasure to be here on your, uh, on your podcast. I had the pleasure of meeting Philip yesterday as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way it all got started was really probably back about uh, 2005, 2006, there was a, um, a founder, Mark Law, uh, in the executive MBA program at the Wharton School out in San Francisco. And I think at the time he had young kids and he was you know, frustrated by buying diapers in the supermarket, so he started this diapers.com. It seemed like a crazy idea, you know, buying pampers from uh, Costco and then selling them online. Anyways, as, as you probably know, you know, the holding company Quidzy, which was diapers.com, soap.com, castle.com, whole thing he sold to Amazon for $545 million in 2011. So what really piqued my interest back then, Florian, was... This was kind of the first wave of e-commerce. It was mm-hmm. sort of e-commerce platforms where you take pre-existing offline products and you sell them online. Mm-hmm. And then I learned a little bit about that from a research point of view. How does an e-commerce company grow the customer base, mm-hmm. spreading over time, spreading over location? And so I was teaching some of these ideas in the introduction to marketing class when I was a mm-hmm. professor at Wharton around 2010, I guess it was. And these four guys came to my office hours, the four founders of Warby Parker, and they said, hey, David, you know, <laughs> talk to you about e-commerce. We've got this idea. We we're going to start an online company. And really in 2010, which is not that long ago, there wasn't much happening. You know, Bonobos was in the yeah, market then in right. 2009, 2008. Casper was not yet founded. Casper was not yet found. I think yeah. that was probably 2013 or yeah, something thereabouts. Right. Yeah. So anyway, these guys, so what's your idea? So Neil said to me, oh, you know, we're going to sell glasses online. So I was thinking to myself, you know, what, what kind of a crazy idea is <laughs> Yeah. You know, so I said to him, you know, don't people want to touch and feel? This is yeah. a tactile product. He said, oh, yeah, we've thought of that. We're going to do this thing called the Home Try-On Program, mm-hmm. which I think uh, now is diffused to other companies, but a very interesting idea that you could select products from the website and they would ship it to you. So that was kind of the serendipitous beginning, I would mm-hmm. say, Florian. And then from that, sorry, it's a little bit of a long answer. No, um, I was teaching, you know, Wharton's a very big school, so I was teaching the intro to marketing class, four Ps, this mm-hmm. and that. So I decided in 2012 to start a new class purely focused on digital marketing and e-commerce and orient all my research into that class and all of my teaching. So I had to, it was fun for me because I had to develop the material. Um, And in part of doing that class, I also just like with you on your podcast, 
I would have guest speakers come in. So I was fortunate to have from VC community, people like Aileen Lee, who came mm-hmm. up with the unicorn mm-hmm. idea, Kirsten Green, and then I had uh, Jeff Rader from Harry's and Warby Parker and mm-hmm. Tom Patterson from Tommy John. So I really became very immersed mm-hmm. in that whole ecosystem. And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's really how it all got started. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but you, 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 you've quit <laughs> academia, yeah? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, quit in the sense that uh, I still do academic research yeah. and I do some guest teaching yeah. once in a while. But, um, but now, yeah, I'm really full-time focused on building a company, Idea Farm, which yeah. is with a good friend of mine and also a, a Wharton MBA yeah. <laughs> uh, alumni. Uh-huh. And um, I think what happened was, you know, what was kind of a quote-unquote hobby uh-huh. <laughs> in 2000, you know, maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. investing, uh, I became more and more passionate about it. And mm-hmm. I sort of thought, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to make most of my emphasis being an investor and, and yeah. learning that game, but still retain some connection to academia through uh-huh. doing research and, and, and for Idea Farm, you know, part of our positioning or uh-huh. try to have some thought leadership is still to continue to, to publish uh, okay. research. Cool. Yeah. So let's jump into the content of PMBBs <laughs> yes. a little bit. So what do you what do you see like as a major differences between like legacy <laughs> CPG brands and and the new generation of vertically integrated brands? I mean, what are the dimensions by yeah. which they differ most? So I think if you start at a very high sort of fundamental level, to mm-hmm. me, it's really a difference in the inception of the brand itself. So mm-hmm. I just feel like. This is not always true, but oftentimes with a legacy company, the opportunity is very research-driven, market research, data, where's there a gap in the market, which is fine. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, has led to many successful and interesting innovations. If you look at companies like P&G, Unilever, and so on, um, this new D2C economy is very much personal pain point driven, mm-hmm. I think. So, you know, you're... Uh, Michael Dubin, and you're saying, yeah, why are my razors so expensive? You know, Mm -hmm. I want to do something about that. And Mm -hmm. of course, now the whole infrastructure of third-party logistics, payment, branding, I mean, all of the engine that you need is there. Mm -hmm. So if you're a guy or a lady that's passionate and you have this personal pain point, Mm -hmm. then you can really build something from that. So I think, to me, that's one of the Mm -hmm. core fundamental differences is that the inception is Mm bottom-up pain point driven. Um, and then I think the second thing is really the whole execution of the go-to-market is very mm-hmm. different. You know, um, that traditional companies are much more push marketing. Mm-hmm. Hey, Florian, you should use Gillette because it makes you a man. It's the best a man can get. Uh, you know, Dollar Shave Club or Harry's is much more of an emotional bond, mm-hmm. I would say. You resonate with, the, identify with the founder story. Mm-hmm. You're engaged to the community. You feel mm-hmm. some connection perhaps to the fellow or the lady who's running the company. So it's very, very, very different mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, pull-driven marketing that you opt in versus mm-hmm. push-driven, hey, I'm telling you, you should have this product. Mm-hmm. Would it be fair to say, that's like <laughs> one of my observations, uh, I don't know whether you would uh, agree to this, but I always uh, also say like that this traditional CPG brands are often, I call them communication brands, so the brand is not really based on the substance or objective features, but rather, you know, they, they communicate it somehow through traditional media and then they're put into the shelf space of, yes. of supermarkets <laughs> and that's why they're bought but there's right. no there's no real objective reason that like the Pringles chips that Procter Gamble offers that are better potato chips or something no. or, or that Pampers is better diapers than others yes. but it's just uh, I mean they're, they're okay products I mean yeah. I'm not saying they're shitty products no, but, no. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but I would say that uh, that's at least what I noticed that most D2C brands at least reach a certain level 
have some substantial feature yes. um, um, or, or that makes them actually review proof. Yes. You know? so, so because, I mean, reviews play a very important role in yeah. online. And I think that objectifies in a certain way, at least, um, consumer feedback. Yes. Um, would, you, would you say that that's true? I mean, do you, or do you yeah. also see D2C brands that are not really subject, uh, objectively superior in a certain way that make it, make it to a certain point? Yeah, that's a great question. So I completely mm -hmm. agree with your observation that you know a lot of the brands that exist in the old economy don't necessarily exist for consumer reasons. They might exist for other reasons. Mm -hmm. I'm a manufacturer. I want to block out the shelf space real estate, so I introduce five SKUs to keep the other guy away, and then that's why the product's on offer because mm -hmm. the retailer, the physical store, was the gateway. Mm -hmm. Of course, the internet now is a great democracy. Anybody can launch anything. And I think you're right. For those D2C brands to exist, they have to have, uh, or to be successful, they have to have a reason to exist, so they have to solve a real problem. And I think in my experience, usually the some combination of three things. The first thing could be just a superior value. You know, like a, a Harry's razor at two dollars is probably better than Gillette at five. Mm -hmm. Number two there could be also some true innovation in the quality. So it is functionally a better product maybe than a legacy product, or at least it's on parity. If you think about like the Away suitcase, it's a pretty good suitcase. Is it better than the legacy? Maybe not, but it's at least as good. And then the third thing is it's often a really true differentiator. We were talking about Casper before, um, is that they create this incredible customer journey where previously there was none. So buying a mattress used to be a pretty crappy experience. And so now you actually create a journey that didn't really exist and the thing comes to your house and it explodes like a jack-in-the-box and there's a bedtime story inside. So I think the value, quality and journey, the ones that succeed, they get that combination right. But of course, even in D2C, you know, things get launched that probably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> but they die off <laughs> fairly, fairly quickly. They get direct feedback. <laughs> they get direct feedback. By the market. Yeah. No, um, have, you, have you observed, like, through all your activity, because I think there's also an interesting question that founders often ask themselves, how should I position this in the sense of also, should it, is, it, is it more likely to succeed with a premium brand or, like, a mid-market value for money, like Harry's, I would say, is a mid-market yes. razor, yeah. but with a very good value for money proposition? Yeah. Uh, or, or would it also be okay to have like a lower end market position? Do you have any opinion on this, whether it's more successful or might, more likely to succeed launching premium product or lo more like a mid-market mass product? Any, uh, yeah. any thoughts on this? Because it's also a question <laughs> I ask myself. I'm just asking you the yeah. questions I find interesting. I think, um, <laughs> no, no, it's a great question. I think empirically, most of the plays tend to be more at the mid mm -hmm. to the, you know, because it's, uh, and it's not that the products are bad, you know, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with an Allbirds pair of shoes, there's nothing wrong with Warby Parker glasses, they mm -hmm. just happen to be at a $95 price point, maybe mm -hmm. instead of a $300, mm -hmm. and what resonates with the customers is that there's, I'm, I'm getting real value, but I'm not necessarily sacrificing quality. Mm -hmm. That said, I'm not aware of so many brands that have taken, as I was, as you would say, you know, like mm -hmm. a real premium mm -hmm positioning, you know, where you're actually more expensive than a legacy brand. Um, but, you know, if I think about, uh, I have to check the price, but if you think about something like Native Deodorant, mm -hmm. was a very successful brand launched by Moise Ali, purchased by P&G. If I'm not mistaken, the price point on that, mm -hmm. I think, is actually quite high. Or, you know, uh, I subscribe myself, so if you get dirty lemon uh, drinks delivered to your home, you know, CBD infused or this or that, I think a six-pack is $45. So, mm -hmm. There are cases, I think, where mm -hmm. the, it can be a premium in some mm -hmm. sense, but I think in most cases it's a parity or slightly innovative quality. Mm -hmm. uh, we can think about Gillette and Harry's. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the thing that you're really unlocking is value. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, that's also my fear. I mean, there's some examples. There's also one example you, you probably will not know. It. It's a company called Lilidoo. Okay. A diaper yeah. brand. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Here in Germany. And they're, they're successful. Um, I mean, they're one of the few DNBBs here in Germany that really are successful. And they were established to, uh, to go price point-wise above Pampers. Interesting. So, and that, yeah. that worked. Um, yeah. um, but I think it's also, I mean, it's, you, I think you need to invest in the brand <laughs> then yeah. first to yeah. justify this. Yes. And it's not that easy. So, I, yeah. I would agree with you that, I mean, I haven't done a proper study, but I think looking at what I see in the market, I would agree that, that most things are mid-marketly yeah. um, positioned, yeah. which is also because you have kind of, you, you minimize kind of the, 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 um, the, 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 the dispersion loss kind of of your marketing activity. I mean, you, you are by definition must market. Yes. So I think that probably makes marketing also easier yeah? because I think marketing to premium customers is something that's, even if you're Facebook or Instagram, right. it's, it's not that easy to target to high yeah. income people. Yeah, uh, even if the targeting options are there, it's often, yeah. it's not so accurate yeah? because yeah. Pro- <laughs> uh, I guess your salary um, information you provide on Facebook is probably not almost, uh, almost accurate. Um, so, but uh, that, that's that's actually a good thing. Um, could you talk a little bit about the role of reviews? Mm-hmm. You know, like online yeah. reviews, how that has sure. changed the perception of brands. Would you? Yeah. There's some people that basically say reviews are the new brands. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that they kind of substituted this trust factor yeah. function yeah. Uh, that that brands used to have. Yeah. Uh, at least partially. Um, would you Would you agree with this? <laughs> and, and and would you say that that's a good mechanism? Are reviews flawed, or is it something right. that that actually give us an objective picture? For sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a qualified uh, answer. I'll start with my life as a former academic. So it was a very, very interesting research study that was done by um, a guy at UCLA. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is it was to look at the effect of reviews on a market from an academic sense. So both of you and I have some, uh, some academic background. So the notion is, if you could remove a information asymmetry from a market, what would be the effect on consumers and what would be the effect on, on the brands or the providers themselves? And by information asymmetry, I mean... I come to your restaurant, I'm enjoying the food, but I don't really know what's happening in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So there's a, you do, I don't. So mm-hmm. what he did was um, there was a big scandal in Los Angeles, and I think it was 1997, and a TV show showed that a lot of these very fancy restaurants actually were quite unhygienic <laughs> in the background. Yeah. And so there was a movement to rate, and if you've been to LA or New York, you'll see mm-hmm. this. You go into a restaurant and there's a letter in the window. Mm-hmm. It says A, B, C, something like this. We've, mm-hmm. we've all seen this if you travel. So this was inter- introduced first in Los Angeles. And the way that number that letter was created was, I come to your restaurant, Florian, and I'm checking everything against some list. Mm-hmm. Your score, your numerical score is 96. 96 is an A. Mm-hmm. You are now required to put the A in the window. Mm-hmm. I go to some other guy, Constantine. He's an 89. 89 is a B. He mm-hmm. must put a B in the window. So this Australian academic did a very clever study. He said, okay, what was the impact mm-hmm. on demand before and after these letters? And as mm-hmm. you might imagine, after the letters came into place, demand at A restaurants increased mm-hmm. about 6% and Bs and Cs went down. So mm-hmm. maybe that's not surprising. Now I know who's better. What was more interesting is what is the impact on the seller? Mm-hmm. So now if the seller knows that he's going to be rated objectively mm-hmm. and verifiably by mm-hmm. the government, um, he's motivated to improve his quality. Mm-hmm. So what this academic did is he looked at revenue receipts for restaurants. Mm-hmm. Did they go up after this regime? Yes, they did. Mm-hmm. And then very clever, he looked at the number of people that got admitted to the hospital <laughs> for mm-hmm. food-based illness mm-hmm. and showed it went down. So this ah. academic paper showed <laughs> reviews, I'm uh-huh. saying here, like a verifiable objective review, 
caused customers to go to the better suppliers and it caused the suppliers themselves to increase their quality. Yeah. So that's in theory what yeah. should happen. But notice in that case, the reviews are very trustworthy yeah. and they're verified. Yeah. Of course, the internet's a bit of a wild, wild west. Yeah. You know, you and I could go to Fiverr.com and yeah. we could hire somebody for five bucks to review the OMR yeah. conference. So what does the academic research say on actual reviews? So it says that if you get a good review, this is Dina Maislin, if people are interested, M-A-Y-Z-L-I-N. She's a professor at USC, is one of the leaders here. She showed that if you get a good review for your business, your demand will go up. Not surprising. If you get a bad review, the demand will go down. And if you get a bad review, the subsequent good reviews will start to disappear also. <laughs> Because imagine you're about to review a hotel and you're thinking to give a five and you open up your Expedia app and oh, you see some twos and ones and then you think to yourself... Yeah, that guy at the desk was kind of yeah. rude. You know? Oh, and the room was a bit smelly. So then you, you downgrade. So, but because of that, people also will write fake reviews. So Dina actually um, published a very interesting paper that showed that certain operators will publish fake reviews about competitors mm -hmm. and that this will be more prevalent uh, on TripAdvisor compared to Expedia. Okay. And the reason is, in her paper, is that I can only review a restaurant or a hotel on, Trip, uh, on Expedia if... I get the email from Expedia mm -hmm. and Expedia sends the email because they noticed my credit card paid for the room. Yeah. So probably I stayed there. Yeah. But uh, Trip, TripAdvisor, at least at the time of the study, was more the scouts. You know, I no. just swear to tell the truth. <laughs> so very long answer. Yeah. So in theory, I think, uh, Florian, reviews should help discipline the market. Mm -hmm. They should help customers. Mm -hmm. They should discipline sellers. In practice, it becomes problematic because often reviews can be faked. They're not verifiable. Mm -hmm. Having said all that, they're a critical component of mm -hmm. what you do. And I have a friend, Rob Conybeare, who's a VC in San Francisco, and he says, you know, if you've got a hardware product, so he was involved in Nest and Aero, mm -hmm. I mean, the first five reviews you get, they better be five stars. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's also you have you have like kind of a path dependency there. Yeah. Yes. It's really, if you if you start on the wrong side of the of the uh, scale, uh, the review scale, I completely it's very, agree. It's yeah. very hard. Completely yeah. agree. Let's let's go talk a little bit about distribution because mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting uh, topic as well. Um, and I mean, what what is your preferred kind of? I mean, it, because I mean, obviously the idea was originally to yeah. to just do online yes. direct distribution, yeah. Yeah. and that kind of changed. And you did also. Some some work on, on retail concepts yes. around DNVBs. So what, what do you think is now the optimal distribution <laughs> model for DNVBs? Is it online direct? Is it, is it online and plus offline direct? Should you own just the stores? Should you do third-party retail? Could you like, discuss those yeah, questions a little bit? I do. That's a great question. Yeah. So I think ultimately you could potentially em embrace all three. So what yeah. do I mean by that? So um, if you look at the playbook and I'll I'll pick Harry's as a case study since we're here in Germany and the blades of Harry's are you know, made in Germany. They're made in Eastern Germany. Uh, yes, yeah, like exactly, exactly. Blade fucking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Harry's, you know, began life as a D2C brand, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they then, I think, more for branding reasons, opened some, you know, barber shops mm -hmm. in, in, in New York. And now if you look at, you know, where is the main growth of Harry's, it's really Target and Walmart. So mm -hmm. it's third-party distribution. And, of course, for Walmart and Target, it's great they want to stock Harry's because it makes their, their retailer, uh, makes them more relevant to mm -hmm. this millennial psychographic that they're chasing. So I think ultimately the playbook for a D2C brand is both online and offline, and mm -hmm. it could be your own online. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, sorry, your own offline. So, you know, Bonobos mm -hmm. uh, kind of pioneered the idea of a zero inventory store, like mm -hmm. a small store where mm -hmm. you come in and I say, hey, Florian, you should try a blue suit and mm -hmm. you buy it and I mm -hmm. ship it to you. But then they also established some relationships with Nordstrom and, mm -hmm. and so on. So I would say in my experience and in, in, in my judgment, if you're a D2C brand, Almost now from the get-go, mm -hmm. you want to be thinking about offline. Is mm -hmm. it an offline pop-up? Is it mobile? Mm -hmm. um, is it a, a store that has fulfillment or is it really just a showroom? So mm -hmm. I've done a lot of research that shows that, that showrooms um, can be a great way to acquire customers. Mm -hmm. And they can also, if a customer has an experience of your brand in a showroom, he gets to know you more and then he actually buys more mm -hmm. online in the future. Mm -hmm. The question of whether you should operate a physical store mm -hmm. that also does fulfillment mm -hmm. That's a little more complicated. You know, mm. Warby Parker has full-blown stores where you mm. can sometimes take the product. And then, of course, the other one is, you know, do you want to have a wholesale distribution mm. partnership? So, you know, Tommy John, the underwear brand, mm -hmm. started in wholesale distribution and mm. backed into online. So, again, a long answer, but I think mm -hmm. online and offline is almost a necessity. Mm -hmm. The question is just what form of offline is mm -hmm. more appropriate. So... You know, Away Luggage, I believe, mm -hmm. opened a showroom in Berlin mm -hmm. and opened in London, LA, New York, almost immediately out of the mm -hmm. gate. And mm -hmm. I think that's the thing I'm seeing is that it's happening much more, much mm -hmm. more quickly mm -hmm. now. Probably one aspect to, to add there, I don't know whether you would agree with that. That's at least something I noticed by, by observing how brands behaved. I think online first and then you do some offline, um, your own showrooms, and that enables you to do good deals yes. with third-party distribution yes. because I yes. think if you, are, if you are not known at all, I mean, you will not get good third-party <laughs> right. retail deals. Yes. I mean, Target and Walmart only take Harry's right, uh, right. because they have established some brands. So, yes. so uh, and I think in a way, if you, uh, if you don't do any marketing up front, in the sense also investing in your own stores, it's just very hard to get good third-party retail deals. Agreed, yeah. Um, the question is just, and that's also what I'm asking myself, is like if you, if you try to value these companies, yeah, so <laughs> if, if there are 80% indirect retail, like Target, Walmart, yeah. um, I think we would both agree that a company that's 80% direct is worth more than the same company with the same kind of uh, revenue, 80% right. indirect. The yeah. question is just how much <laughs> right. is the difference? Yeah. Yes. Um, and and uh, so, so one, one element, I, I think that's more philosophical question <laughs> probably than, uh, than, uh, than one, one can really calculate. One, one element that also plays into that that people often ask themselves, is it okay to sell on marketplaces? Yeah, like go to Amazon. Right. Shouldn't away or Harry's also sell on Amazon? And and is that worse or better than Target or Walmart? Right. Yeah? So do you have an opinion on selling oh, on man. market yeah. or like on, on an Amazon market type marketplaces? You know, that's a tough question, Florian, because I think that's something that's a question that um, I think is only recently that <laughs> the founders are starting to ask themselves. So if you just again, sometimes the history is quite interesting or instructive. You know, if you go back as as we both know, you know, I think Bonobos was. Um, 2008, rough, or 2007, maybe they started at, at Stanford, so 2007, 2008. If you watch Andy Dunn, the, the founder and CEO, in an old YouTube video, say 2009, he might have said something like, the physical store is a crazy proposition, it's a total waste of time, I will never do it, you know. And then if you look at, you know, what was it that probably allowed him to get the exit, um, you know, the zero inventory store or the guide shop was kind of his creation. So small footprint, just browsing and, you know, Tesla is kind mm -hmm. of a zero mm -hmm. inventory store. So he kind of pioneered that, um, that idea. So 
I think the first thing to note was a real shift in mindset. People said, oh, offline is actually really important. Mm -hmm. And so that took them into showrooms and pop-ups and their own stores and wholesale distribution. I think the last thing that now people are starting to think about is what is the role of Amazon? Yeah. And if I do Amazon, do I do it under my own brand? Yeah. Uh, or do I do it under something else? So there was a sleepwear brand that we were looking at uh, and you know, using one brand name and Amazon, but mm -hmm. then that also has problems. So I think the Amazon puzzle mm -hmm. uh, has been less figured out by the yeah. D2C. I think the D2C community has sort of figured out maybe Walmart, Target, Nordstrom, mm -hmm. those kind of companies. They mm -hmm. have some conception of how they should interact there, but at least I could, I could be wrong, but mm -hmm. uh, my guess is that the Amazon puzzle is oh. not a clear answer yet. <laughs> yeah, and it's also especially, you, you have to think about whether you become basically a marketplace seller yes. or you become a vendor you know, where <laughs> right. you sell into Amazon and yeah. Amazon determines the price point yes. uh, or you become a seller, marketplace seller where you determine the price right. point and have at least some autonomy. Yeah? But I would agree with you. It's like something uh, I always compare it like to, to Amazon can be a little bit like a drug. Yeah? You <laughs> right. start taking crack and then uh, you think it's great and then, but whether it's long-term healthy for you, I yeah. don't know whether the crack analogy is fair because it implies that it's not good for you long-term obviously, yeah. but um, um, because on the other hand, what I find really attractive via marketplaces, if you think about it, I mean, you can be a US brand right. and you use Amazon to sell uh, in Amazon Japan, Absolutely. Yeah? Uh, yeah. which is something, if you look at the fixed cost of selling in Japan, which is a really attractive market, which right. likes American brands or yeah. European brands, or, that would have not been possible without a major investment, and now you can basically use the same logistics hub, Amazon US, uh, ship this product there, and they will handle the rest. I mean, they will even, you know, provide you with people that help you to, to translate into Japanese. Yeah, yeah and I, I suppose if you've already, you know, through your own properties, mm -hmm. built up your brand image and your story and your narrative, and you're not relying on Amazon to communicate that, mm -hmm. it's really just the brand is established enough that people yeah. know it. I think the other consideration that's interesting too is I think if you're Target or Walmart, in some sense you, you, you need a Harry's or you need a Casper because it helps with your own relevance to bring people into the store. I sort of wonder if, uh, if the same analogy applies for Amazon. Do they, do they really need to host the D2C brands as much? Maybe not. Yeah. I, I, I would have also <laughs> thought that like the, the power balance between yeah. like a Target Walmart and a D2C brand, that's cool, yes. uh, is, is less towards the Target and Walmart than yes. it is in the Amazon case. For sure. And also, if you look I at agree. the own brand activity of, of, of Amazon, which is, uh, you know, amazing. Yeah. Um, and also their onboarding activity. I mean, what they also do in that is, I think, quite frightening. I mean, they onboard the suppliers of the D2C right. brands. Yeah? I right. mean, they go to Chinese suppliers and onboard <laughs> them directly. And that, that probably speaks for the fact that working with Walmart and, 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 uh, and Target, or in Germany, that would be like a Rewe, yeah? yep. uh, that, that's probably a more even partnership uh, than it is with Amazon. Yeah? So, uh, interesting Agreed. question. One other element I, I would like to touch on is, um, um, is the, the question of repeat purchase. Mm -hmm. yeah? Because if you are a Casper, it's not that easy, obviously, <laughs> right. to create repeat purchase. And at least one thing that we see in, in other B2C models, e-com, but also travel or whatever, is if you don't have the repeat purchase, it's just very, very yeah. hard to get a you know, decreasing marketing yeah. costs. And yeah. so you need an increasing percentage of repeat purchase 
customers coming in. Um, what's your thought there? Is it is it or your thoughts there? Is it something that the good D2C brands think about from the start? How we can we make the assortment in a way? I mean, obviously diapers is easier to create repeat purchases <laughs> right. than it, or, or fragrance yeah, than it is yeah, with yeah. A, a Casper. Is it something that you that you think about a lot or try yeah, to help your founders? For sure. So mm -hmm. I think there's sort of two ways to do it. If, if it's a product, let's say like eyewear, where You don't necessarily need additional glasses, but because the price point's attractive, you might think of it as more a fashion mm -hmm. accessory. So we do see Warby Parker customers, maybe they buy three instead of one because now I have some fashion accessory depending on what I'm, I'm wearing. The second strategy could be a sort of more of a skew extension or proliferation. If you think of Harry's, mm -hmm. particularly now through Harry's Ventures, you know, mm -hmm. they have um, body wash, they have shampoo, mm -hmm. they have shave foam. So you build some repeatability through additional consumables. Uh, if it's a bigger ticket item that's really a one-time thing, you're not going to you know, be replacing your mattress mm -hmm. uh, that often. Then I think the challenge is what are some other smaller ticket items that Casper could introduce? So yeah. if Casper in some sense is is owning, let's say, sleep as opposed mm. to mattresses, mm. are there things that Casper could sell you that were more consumable mm. or lower ticket or had a velocity that was much greater than that of the mattress? So mm. I, I would certainly be encouraging yeah. those big ticket, infrequent brands to think about what is it that they could offer that would be high velocity and small ticket. Mm -hmm. And I think brands that are more consumable are kind of doing that anyway. Mm -hmm. um, One element that's that's also interesting in the, in, in the marketing arena there is also how do you actually build the brand? I mean, some people employ influencers to do <laughs> yeah. that for them. Yeah, um, is that something that that you think is a sustainable strategy? So, would you uh, that could either be like a Michael Dubin uh, <laughs> right. uh, that is like his own influencer, or yeah, like an Elon yeah. Musk, or, or working with third-party influencers? Is influencer something that you would consider? like a, a sustainable brand building strategy because CPG brands often would argue, oh, no, that, you know, that all only works short term. You know, yeah. you, you can you do like the Kim Kardashian kind of thing. <laughs> but the, people will buy it for two years, but then it's gone. We right. work on our brands for generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so is there substance to the CPG um, argument? So I think there is a little bit. So mm -hmm. I would say, you know, the, the influencer strategy is important. You do mm -hmm. want... Um, customers who are kind of quote-unquote special customers who have the ability to influence other people and you've seen over the last few years you know like the rise of platforms that will help you do this so a founding team that I knew quite well had a company called Relio R-E-E-L-I-O like movie reel and the way Relio worked if you're a traditional brand like uh, Taco Bell uh, mm -hmm. you could go into the platform and you say hey I want somebody in this the influencers who are in the platform to come up with some content that's about um half-off tacos, mm -hmm. and they put that there. And then in this particular case, there was a fellow called Big Doors who uh, was a funny guy in some southeastern campus in the United States who made sort of college humor type videos, and he had a couple of million followers. So he went and he made this video, it's called Halfway Hugging. So mm -hmm. he went around the campus, and I come up to you, you're a stranger, I start leaning into you, and, you, and then I pull out, and there's a funny reaction. And then at the end of the video, he says, you know, halfway hugging's a bit awkward, but what's not awkward is half off your, you know, your tacos. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, And that particular piece of content, you know, 250,000 people watched it mm -hmm. all the way through. 50,000 actually downloaded the app. So mm -hmm. it can be very powerful. Uh, but because, to your other point, it can be faddish and mm -hmm. it can die out. 
What you also need in parallel, I think, is you need to be creating your own organic content, mm -hmm. either yourself or your community doing it. So mm -hmm. if you look at the Harry's Five O'Clock magazine, mm -hmm. or you look at the content that Away mm -hmm. produces around travel, that's an ongoing endeavor that mm -hmm. keeps the brand relevant and keeps mm -hmm. the brand interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think you really want to be controlling that mm -hmm. and owning it and continuing to produce it. Mm -hmm. And yes, if a certain influencer dies off, that's fine, but you've mm -hmm. still got this body of content mm -hmm. that's elevating your brand. So you need some kind of systematic activity 100 yeah. yes yeah, okay. yeah 100% uh, yeah. because i think that's often yeah it's, it's a little similar to the crack example we had earlier <laughs> right. in, in, in a different way um, and and i think that's also one common theme that like the the merging of content and commerce is very visible yes. uh, in, in in this and sometimes community comes into play as well yeah Absolutely. but i mean community yep. has like more probably arbitrary elements in it yeah. compared to co systematic content creation yeah. Yeah? but you really need like some kind of editor in chief Absolutely. sort of like a magazine yes. or yes. like like any professional media company and i think that's that's something probably that people don't realize enough that a dmvb that's supposed to be successful is always like a media company to a certain extent absolutely and yeah. i think you know that's one reason i really have tremendous respect for the founders of mm -hmm. Away is that you know they don't really think of themselves as a luggage company. I mean, now their main product is luggage, but mm -hmm. they're really a company about making travel great. And what does that involve? That involves beautiful photography of interesting mm -hmm. places and narratives of where you can go in Istanbul mm -hmm. or Auckland or wherever. Um, and I think because the brand has led with that, um, that's allowed them to really captivate their their customers and their audience. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that. I find um, interesting or like one interesting question. I mean, obviously, VCs invest into <laughs> DNVBs because they want to have great exits. And we, right. we, we have seen some great exits, yes. like Dollar Shave Club for like six times revenue or five mm -hmm. and a half times revenue to, to Unilever and, 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 and others. What's your perspective on this? <laughs> will, will like these five times multiple on revenue? I mean, obviously, normally, if a Procter Gamble buys an offline brand, they're probably more on a one and a half to yes. two times revenue. Yeah. Um, will those, you know, factors on the traditional multiples continue? Will, will you know, the Procter Gambles of this world, will they continue to pay premium prices for DNVBs? Do they still need this kind of direct-to-consumer competence? Or is, is kind of the need for these brands less and therefore multiples will go down? What's, I, what's your view That's a difficult question. So yeah. I'll go out on a limb and I'll say, uh, I'll answer the first part and say, I, I think the legacy brands do still really mm -hmm. need to acquire these brands, whether it's um, Unilever doing it or mm -hmm. PNG or mm -hmm. even players like, like Clorox. I mm -hmm. think there's a whole host of legacy players that say, you know what, we had this great infrastructure, so I'll give mm -hmm. P&G as an example. I think in their 180-year history, you know, every 10 years was always a major innovation. This mm -hmm. is somebody at the company told me this. Um, so maybe the last one was the Swiffer, you know, that mm -hmm. cleaning thing. And I think now maybe they're at the point where they've gone 16, 17 years and they've, mm -hmm. they've missed, you mm -hmm. know, the 10 years. So I think those big brands have uh, and continue to really struggle to address this millennial psychographic and say, you know what, it's easier for me to acquire Native and Moise mm. Ali and his talent than to go out and try and do it myself. And in mm. fact, you know, I think in that case, they had spent a bunch of money trying to address the natural deodorant segment. Mm. So I think the need will be there. Mm -hmm. The question on the multiples is interesting as to whether they will stay as robust or whether mm. they'll drop. And I think there's sort of two issues there. Is one, a number of the D2C brands that you and I you know, know, know very well I think sometimes have taken too much money and they've been overcapitalized. Mm -hmm. And if you look at 
you know, say, and this is no disrespect to anyone who's running these brands, but if you looked at a brand like Bonobos, you know, it took a fair amount of money in its mm. history. And I think, yes, for the early investors and everybody, it was probably a decent exit, but maybe less so for the later investors. So is there a way to capitalize these companies, you know, more efficiently, grow them more organically so they take less money? And, you know, you see... Again, I'm not sure the exit, what it would be, but if you look at Allbirds, you know, mm. as a $1.5 billion company, and I believe it's only taken about 40 or $50 million in revenue. That's very capital efficient. Yeah, yes. So mm. I think mm-hmm. the ratios may come down, the need will still be there, but I think the challenge for us, you know, as, as investors and people in the ecosystem is, can we encourage the founders to be more capital efficient and sort of not fund them like tech companies, uh, whether there may be a home run $10 billion, yeah. But say, you know, this is a good company that's going to get to 60 million, and, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's spend 3 million to do it. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, if I'm informed correctly, Dollar Shave Club, I think, look, took like 150 million or so. Could have, yes. Uh, something in that yep. ballpark, something between 100 and 200 million, and did like, I think, 160 revenue, 180 revenue, something like that. Sounds like. about right. Uh, yeah. and, and if you then, if you have a 2x <laughs> yeah, after seven years, yeah. mean, you could have also not invested in the stock market, but quite. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, so, 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 in, in, so even a dollar shift up, which is probably a good example, uh, or great example, uh, and a great success, if you if you look at it purely from a capital efficiency, yes. you needed some outlier exit Absolutely. performance and you know, to, to justify the investment. Yeah, and I think this is why um, it would be very interesting to see, if it is in fact the case, I think Casper, there's some rumors that Casper may go public. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine Warby Parker at some point can't yeah. be too far away because they're almost at the 10-year 10, mm-hmm. 10 anniversary of founding. So I mm-hmm. think... It'll be interesting to watch uh, how do those flagship brands do because they may set the standard for the ones that follow. But do you have any recommendations how to stay, like how to how to, to, to stage probably the the use of capital in a more efficient way, not to spend money too early before you have <laughs> not before you have not really figured out yeah. the recipe for growth. Um, I mean, I think it's one of those things, and maybe it's part of the problem with uh, with being a former professor. Is it easy easy mm. to say? It's harder harder to do. Um, but I think honestly, um, a brand that I really admire in that regard, again coming back to it, is um, is a way. Mm. And the way that brand was grown was incredibly capital efficient mm. in terms of the way that Jen Rubio did the marketing. So, mm. to my knowledge, you know, have, hearing her speak in my my class and so on mm. was. You know, um, she really thought of herself almost, I would say, like a, a Steven Spielberg, like a mm. movie director. So she had narrated like a whole year of content that she wanted to be out in the media about her brand. Mm. And even to the level of thinking about who was going to write the story and what publication, how will I repurpose mm. it. So the first story is, you know, two ex Warby Parker people do Warby Parker of luggage. And then mm. the next story is two young female founders. And the next story is, a hipster in Brooklyn will paint your initials you know, on the back. But just incredibly thoughtful and, yeah. and not really... The, the, the problem is, you know, the economics of D2C is it looks very attractive. As, as you were saying earlier, you've got this big margin when you go direct. But if you kind of eat that margin by spending it on Facebook, mm. by having too many product returns, mm. by, you know, you, could, you can easily uh, get rid of it all, mm. you know. So you, you really don't want to undo those economics. So I think the more you can use organic growth, PR, mm. referrals, all of that traditional stuff, mm. you know, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. The PR piece is <laughs> quite interesting, I think, because 
I mean, there's some people that argue. Also, if there's one thing you can probably learn from Donald Trump, yeah. uh, that, that <laughs> if you access your audience directly, whatever you may think of that audience, <laughs> is, uh, you know, you, you, you just bypass traditional media. And, yeah. and, and uh, so, like, also the Kim Kardashian <laughs> right. example, yeah, which is probably not much worse, uh, not, not, not much better from... You know, anyway, that's not the discussion we should get into. But it's... Um, um, it's, it's, it's interesting to look at and, and it's like do you still need traditional PR so to be become a credible brand like the Away brand or, or can it also be done basically by yourself I, also direct, going direct to consumer know, using Instagram or okay so it's really interesting so yeah. I'll, I'll share some uh, again what I used to teach some academic yeah. research I used on this point so it was a very clever study done by a couple of guys at um, uh, I think it was Carnegie Mellon or University of Pittsburgh and what they showed was if your brand gets a mention in a traditional media outlet, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall mm. Street Journal, um, it gets a big boost mm -hmm. from that, assuming that it's obviously that it's positive, it gets mm -hmm. a big boost. But that those events are fairly infrequent. You know, Even if you're Warby Parker, the New York Times is not going to write about you every week or even yeah. every month. Um, they then showed that um, if you get positive mentions in blogs like eyewear blogs mm -hmm. uh, shaving blogs these things I guess do exist um, the bump that you get is smaller but yeah. it happens more frequently mm -hmm. and then finally what they show was the social content that's generated by your own customer base on your own site also the bump is less but it happens more frequently and the main takeaway was uh, the social earned media that you get has a bigger positive impact than the traditional earned mm -hmm. media that you get, but they kind of play these different roles. Mm -hmm. So the brands that I've seen that have been successful have got a good mix of both, mm -hmm. and I think the traditional stuff really helps you early on. Yeah. So if GQ comes out and says, hey, there's this new thing, Warby Parker, that's the Netflix mm -hmm. of eyewear mm -hmm. and talks about the home trial, you know, you get a good bump out of that. Yeah. But in order to have longevity, it then becomes about your own content creation mm -hmm. and your own community to sort of keep that mm -hmm. that runway going. At least that's uh, yeah. that's what I've seen. So it probably seems to be the more sustainable and systematic way yes. to have kind of both. Yes. And not just say, okay, I'm going direct, screw <laughs> traditional media, uh, I don't need that anymore. Yeah, there's certainly a legitimacy that you mm -hmm. get from traditional media uh, mm -hmm. that I think similar to the legitimacy that you get if you have a physical presence. Customers, hey, you're a real guy. You've mm -hmm. got an actual store that, <laughs> that I can shop at. Mm -hmm. So um, if, if you're investing today in, in these kind of brands, what are kind of, apart from the founders, <laughs> etc., yeah. what are the characteristics you're looking for? So if, right. if you can give some recommendations <laughs> sure. to aspiring DNVB founders, yeah. I mean, what, what would be the things you would be looking at as an investor? And yeah. obviously you should be looking at as a, as a founder. For sure. Yeah? So I think the first thing that's really important uh, for us at Idea Farm is to say, is this really a true white space? Mm -hmm. uh, is this something that you know didn't exist before? There was clearly a need for it, and then it did exist. So, you know, something like personalized vitamins, for example, mm -hmm. is like, you know, that's a terrible buying experience to go out and buy vitamin K, D. Most of us in our home have bottles of the stuff half-eaten mm -hmm. sitting around. So if you could go into that space and you could personalize it and say, made for Florian, mm -hmm. that's a pretty good idea. So we're very idea-driven to mm -hmm. say, is this a true white space that addresses a true pain point? That would mm -hmm. be the first thing. Then the second thing I think that's important is, can we get a sense of, you know, what's really the right size that this business should be? It doesn't have to be a billion. We're not swinging for the fences, but we're really looking for, for companies that can be built very, very efficiently mm -hmm. uh, and sort of done so in a reasonably short time frame. And then the third thing that we think about a lot is, you know, what's the exit for this brand? Like, who, who are the list of acquirers? How acquisitive have they been in the past? Of course, you can always sell down in secondary markets and so on, but, you know, a true pain point, 
something that can be done capital efficient and a sense of what really is the proper size of this business. And then thirdly, you know, who are the lists, who's on the list of acquirers? Mm -hmm. And ideally, there's some actually historical data that says, yes, you know, L'Oreal does buy this kind of brand or, you know, P&G is interested in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So those would be three things other than, you know, the founder magic and, mm -hmm. and everything else. Do, do you uh, see like any kind of minimum size that you that you need to have as a brand to <laughs> like come off the on the radar screen of a PNG and a L'Oreal? I mean, what what uh, do you I have some think, kind of experience? Yeah, what, what I mean, size is? Uh, again, sort of um, speculating a little bit. But mm -hmm. if you look at the recent acquisitions, PNG, Unilever, those companies, I mean, if you could get to a revenue runway run rate of 15 to 20 million, you could be interesting to okay. those brands at that point. Even if you're non-US. Uh, potentially, the, yeah. Uh, okay, but <laughs> yeah, because I, I think, think so. that's also an I mean, L'Oreal yes. obviously is based in Paris, yeah. Yes, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, most of the most of the uh, M and A activity—that's at least my my perception of the last C large CPG brands—is driven from the US. A lot of it, uh, yeah. and, and obviously it's a little more difficult as a Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Swiss has like a, a Dutch, yeah. let's say a Dutch uh, uh, CPG, like DNVB, to get on the radar screen of yeah. some US M&A yes. professional. Yeah. Uh, so then, then probably the size is a little higher. But, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Um, you know, even if you talk to players that you might not think are in the traditional series, somebody like, say, a Clorox, mm -hmm. actually... Uh, is potentially a, an acquirer of all kinds of things in the consumer space. So I think beyond even just you know Nestle, P&G, L'Oreal, Unilever, mm -hmm. you know you think about Reckitt, Benckiser, Clorox. There's actually a, maybe a bigger universe now mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. who at least have some appetite. Mm -hmm. Have you seen? And that's also one thing I'm, I'm asking myself because most of the direct to consumer, which the name says, has been <laughs> right. focusing on, on on B2C. Yeah. Is there any opportunity that you'd see in like B2B products? Huh. Yeah, because, I mean, what you see in e-commerce is right. I mean, nobody would invest today. Um, right. no, no normal investor uh, that has uh, some sanity in his <laughs> or her head would probably invest in a regular trading retail e-com model right. with third-party brands, yeah. Uh, yeah. which goes head-to-head -head with Amazon, yeah? Yeah, I mean, unless yeah. you have like three to 500 million euros, then you can probably still do that. <laughs> right. But otherwise, it's probably not a, not a good idea. Um, so, so people have diverted to, mm -hmm. to like B2B marketplaces with mm -hmm. more complexity around it and services around it. Yeah. Have you seen any kind of activity hmm. there? It's a very open question. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, I, I haven't looked too much yeah, in the yeah. B2B space, but I have to think that some of the... Some of the principles of what enabled D to C, which was you know inflated margins, mm. information asymmetry, you know too many players in the mix, some of those things probably translate into mm. certain B 2 B markets. So, if the structural characteristics are similar, yeah. then I think there should be opportunity. But just uh, not yeah. not something I've looked at <laughs> yeah. looked at too much myself. Yeah, me neither. But I find it an interesting question because yeah. I think it, it could be it could be something that where at least you see that that B 2 B e commerce. Yeah. Tends to be more capital efficient, yeah, because right. the marketing costs are more not rational. That high. Yes, fewer um, number of customers and I mean, bigger obviously, orders. obviously, you have to have kind of some good combination of marketing and sales and uh, and account management, which often you don't have in, in 
B2C, yeah? Yeah. because transaction is over when the package is shipped. And yes. in B2B, you often have like some service component yeah. or consulting component around it. Um, but that, that seems to be an interesting opportunity, yeah. actually. Uh, that's huh. not as uh, as busy. Oh, uh, we should talk after. That's good. So that this podcast actually has something useful <laughs> to it, apart from you know delivering hopefully good content. Yeah, thanks a lot for yeah, answering all these oh, questions. Oh, no, and, real and, pleasure. And, and yeah. sharing, sharing yeah. your thoughts. And um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll see a lot more uh, uh, D2C uh, activity or... or um, direct to, to consumer, whether it's B2B or B2C yeah. uh, in the future, because I, I think it also has a lot of positive effect on the on CPG brands yes, uh, in, in terms of quality and, and uh, that they provide and, and uh, objective uh, kind of performance they, they deliver. And I think that that's something good. And uh, yeah, let's see where, where, where the market will go. Yeah? Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing your, My your, pleasure. your thoughts. Thank you, Florian. Thanks a lot. Cool. Buzz.